0: I love that he said, our very own. I get to be a part of the hour. I like it. Um, I'll take it. Yeah, I feel, you know, when you go to a wedding reception and you see people, you're like, yes, how you doing? And others, you're like, I don't know you, but I've heard of you, and since you know them, we're best friends now. And so that's how I feel about uh, this church. Some of you I've known for a long time, others getting to know and feel like we're at this great wedding reception where we all kind of know the main one, Jesus. We all uh, are around this wedding party who is the staff of this church that I've known for so many years and really love them so dearly and glad I get to share this morning And I um, hope I give you something to take notes about. I'm at least going to give you a question and a sentence that you can take out of here. And I do have a question I want to ask you. It's a question that I was asked about a year and a half ago that really rocked my world. And I was sitting with my friend, also my counselor, Bill, and he looked at me and he said, uh, he said, Carl, um, I was discipled for 15 years by a man named Dallas Willard. If you don't know Dallas Willard, author, pastor, philosopher at USC for many years, shaped a lot of Christianity Anyway, and he said, he asked me a question I want to ask you. And I said, okay, go for it. And he said, if you could just describe Jesus in only one word, what would that one word be? And I felt like, I I remember just looking at him going, I don't think it matters what I say because you already know what you're going to say, so why don't we just get to that? And he's like, no, really wrestle with that. What is the one word you would use to describe Jesus? So I'm going to let you step into my misery. I'm going to ask you that. What is the one word you would use? Don't say it right now. Let it rumble around in your head. I want you just to think about what this one word would be. Because like Andrew said, I'm really excited about this four-week series I'm going to get to do. And um, we're calling this series Pause. Everybody say pause. pause. Now, I think that you're going to enjoy it. It's going to lead up all the way to Easter. We'll go Old Testament to New Testament and, and all the in-between. Most likely a lot of the stories I'm going to, I'm going to preach from are stories you know, And so my question is not, do you know these Bible stories? My question is, how much do we really stop and pause and ask ourselves if we are experiencing these stories at a soul level? Most of us aren't because of how fast we're all running. There's a, uh, an ancient story of, of an explorer that hired some guides to help his trek through Africa, and they took off day one, and they covered more terrain than they thought was possible. Day two, they made record time. They got up again. Day three made record time. Day four, the explorer got up to the meeting spot, and nobody was there. And he went to the interpreter and said, Where's, where is everybody? Go find them. And he came back and said, uh, they said they're not going. He was like, I'm paying them. Go get them. And he went and he came back and they said, "Uh," they said they're not going. And he was like, why are they not going? And the interpreter said, well, our, our guides have commented that they need time for their souls to catch up with their bodies. And I wonder how much we are all running at such a pace that our bodies are out in front of our soul. Like you drove 75 miles an hour to get here, but I don't know that your soul traveled 75 miles to match up with that. So you, your body may be here, but your soul may be back in bed after all. We're like it's spring break time still. So how, are, how, how do you bring that all together? As a matter of fact, in, uh, just last year in 2022, an article came out called Exhausted Nation." And in the article, it said that, um, I believe it was, what was it, two-thirds? Yeah, three out of every five Americans said they are more tired than they have ever been and that a nap is not a viable solution. Eighty-four percent of millennials were reported to say that they are burned out at work. Two-thirds of workers today say they are exhausted and burned out, and the reason is because they are always on. And so when you come to this sermon, you come to this service, it's a tiny little week Part of your entire week but my prayer has been that you're going to get to pause and get something down at the soul level because here's what I know about you I know you love God and want God and if you're a human you have taken some real hits in the last few years and there is a weariness where some of us feel like we're moving in a brain fog we're moving in a slug fest and we're like we still love God but something's not clicking what is it And so, my prayer has been that maybe that it will be revealed in the next couple of weeks, and you'll get to um, let the Holy Spirit meet you down at that soul level. And today, what we're gonna do is we're gonna meet a man in scripture that uh, maybe you've heard of before. His name is Gideon. And Gideon experienced what I'm talking about firsthand. I mean, you and I say, we have an enemy. No, he had like a real enemy. Like they would come and steal their food and terrorize their village, like real enemy. And so he knows God is here, but apparently we see that he doesn't really know God here because when we meet him, he's doing his work in a basement, which is basically like farm work he's doing indoors in a basement. So it just doesn't make sense. And then this visitor comes to Gideon. And the visitor we know is an angel, he doesn't seem like he's so clear about this. And so when the angel comes and says, you're a mighty warrior and all these great words, he's looking baffled at the guy and says, tell you what, if that's true, I need to see a sign. I'll go make you dinner. You come up with your sign and he comes back. And that's where we pick up the story in Judges chapter six. It says, the angel of God said to him, take the meat and the unleavened cakes and put them on this rock and pour out the broth. And he did so. Then the angel of the Lord reached out the tip of the staff that was in his hand, touched the meat and the unleavened cakes, and fire sprang up from the rock and consumed the meat and the unleavened cakes. And the angel of the Lord vanished from his sight. I love this next sentence. Then Gideon perceived it was an angel of the Lord. And Gideon said, help me, Lord God. I've seen the angel of the Lord face to face. And the Lord said to him, peace be to you. Don't fear. You shall not die. Gideon's a good Israelite. I mean, he's been to youth camp and mission trips. He's a life group leader at church. So as a result, he knows you see God, you die. So he's just putting the math equation together. I've seen him, I'm dead. Good, it's dead, okay? And then in that moment, he gets to pick one word to describe God. Wondering what word he's gonna use. Maybe it's God, I survived. The God who helped me survive, or I'm not dead, or my encourager, or something like that. But he uses a different word. Verse 24 says, Then Gideon built an altar there to the Lord and called it Jehovah Shalom. Now, that word shalom, if you've heard that word before, what does it mean? Peace. Peace is right, sort of. It's the way we describe peace. It's the way Jews greet one another, shalom or shalom, shalom, and they say shalom back. They just sandwich their life in shalom. It actually doesn't just mean peace. It means that your entire soul, your mind, your body, all of you has come into full alignment like a safe that has a code and it comes together and click. It's all together. The byproduct is peace, shalom. And that's what Gideon is now experiencing at this level. He, just doesn't, he doesn't now know the Bible verse. He's experiencing it at a much, much deeper level. And so he goes on and he says, then Gideon built an altar to the Lord and he called it, I got peace from God, right? No, the Lord is peace. To this day, it still stands. He didn't say I got anything from God. He said, I got to meet God and God is peace. So the sense of rest and safety I'm experiencing is not because I like the worship songs they sang this morning. It's because I actually met with shalom. You see what I'm saying? This is here, not necessarily just here. Which leads me back to my previous question. What would you have said is the one word you'd use to describe Jesus? Because when I was asked, I chose the Christian cheat word. What do we all say in those moments? Love. Love. Thank you, Jessica. We say love. Because you say love, you're never wrong. And so Bill did what you're doing. He laughed at me. And he said, safe. That's very safe. That's not what Dallas Willard told me he said, here's the the word that Dallas gave me. Now, had it not been someone like Dallas Willard, I would have dismissed it immediately, okay? (laughs) Three reasons. Number one, I am anything but relaxed. So if Jesus is, then me and him are miles apart, okay? Number two, really at that time, I was very unrelaxed. I was waking up Every night at 3 a.m., I was having nightmares, panic attacks, literally could barely survive a day. My prayer every morning was, God, get me through this day. My prayer at night was, do do I have to do this again tomorrow? So I was literally experiencing anything but relaxed. And then stories of the gospel started flooding my mind, like Jesus sweating drops of blood. That didn't sound relaxed to me, so now it's like heretical. So I I was kind of like torn in this moment, but yet intrigued. I find myself going back to the scriptures and making and seeing this list that when it's time for Jesus to launch his public ministry, he's unhurried and he goes to the desert for 40 days. His family comes to him one time and tries to rebuke him in front of a crowd for what he's doing, but he doesn't react to their emotions. He just calmly sets a boundary. Or what about when they're in a boat and the storm is coming and everybody's raging and Jesus is doing what? Sleeping. How many times was Jesus interrupted in his ministry? C.S. Lewis says you can determine a man's character by how he responds in interruption. Which is why I hate C.S. Lewis. Um, (laughs) But crowds interrupt Jesus and he just seems to patiently feed them. Lone sharks come in to the temple. And I always picture Jesus just immediately throwing the tables over. But it actually says he sat down and weaved together a rope. Or what about when he's, he's baited with questions that are meant to entice him and trick him that could be his end, and instead, he doesn't take the bait, he just goes and writes in the ground, and then calmly gives an answer that totally diffuses the situation and brings God into the, into the equation. So you may be sitting out there just like I was going, I'm not sure I'm buying this, Jesus had some very unrelaxed emotions, anguish and pain and pressure and fear, and you'd be 100% right. I'm not saying he didn't experience those things. I'm saying that in the midst of them, Jesus didn't do what we do. He actually would look at his father and attune to the kingdom of heaven, and then his, God's presence, and then he would become that calm presence in the midst of our world. Anybody think we could use that right about now? And now again, if you don't believe that's the one word to describe Jesus, don't get caught off on that. That's great. That's just one man's opinion. Not a big deal. Okay? But I just have to, to wonder if you would agree with me that Jesus was relaxed under pressure. And that might be something we all need. Everybody feel peaceful right about now? not me. Because if you're a person like me, I'm being told to be more peaceful. I don't know how, and so I'm now stressed out, okay? I mean, people all around me are described as chill. I've never been used. That word's never been used. This many times has that word been used. When Carl, chill, relax. No, none of that stuff, okay? Here's how you know what people perceive of you. You can tell by the books they recommend you read. (laughs) Anybody heard it? John Mark Comer's The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry." Okay, which is actually a Dallas Willard quote he got credit for. I've been given that book by about 12 people. And I perceived they think that I have an issue with hurry. One of those was my wife. Because she loves to buy books, not read them and tell me that I should. But she actually did read that one. And, th- and she gave it to me and I'm like, you don't, I don't, you can't, I don't know. Because when we are driving, we could come to a red light. There can be 84 cars in this lane and one car in this lane and Blair is content to be car 85. <laughs> just sit there, go through three lights. She gets through more of her True Kind podcast, and she feels blessed. And I'm grinding, like, get over there to the lane. We could have saved 12 seconds, you know, so it just, it just doesn't work that way. So she gave me that book, and she was like, this guy gets in the longest line at the grocery store so he can experience patience. And I was like, that's because he's a psycho. So I, you can tell, this is not the way that my MO works. So you might read Philippians 4 and hear Paul saying, do not be anxious about anything and experience peace. That makes me stressed out. Because I'm like, I don't know how to do that. Push the button, I guess. I don't have a button. So I guess I'm stuck. What am I going to do about that? When I hear Paul say that, I go, I know why Paul said that. He did not have children. Easy for you to say, Paul, but for any of us with responsibilities in the whole world, this is not so easy. Now, we take all of that that we experience and put on top of that the fact that the World Health Organization just came out and said that anxiety and stress are the epidemic of the 21st century. So I go back to Judges 6. There's got to be something in the scriptures for us. And I saw something I hadn't seen before. Right before the call of Gideon, in verse 7, it says that when the Israelites cried to the Lord on account of the Midianites, the Lord sent a prophet to the Israelites. And he said to them, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I led you up from Egypt, I brought you out of the house of slavery, and I delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians and from the hand of all who oppressed you. I drove them out before you and gave you their land. He is reminding them of who he is. And I said to you, I am the Lord your God. You shall not pay reverence to the gods of the Amorites in whose land you live, but you've not given heed to my voice. In other words, he's saying, when the enemy comes at you, terrorizes your land, steals all your food, I want you to be able to experience the peace of God. Find me in that place. But you are doing what your Egyptian captors used to do. You are attuning to your surroundings, and you are going back, and you are turning to other gods. And so when the tension comes, when sleeplessness comes, when the grief comes, when the anxiety, when the stress comes, instead of attuning to the presence of God, you're just doing what everybody else does. And as a result, you're getting what everybody else gets. All of everything I just said, at least in my book, is theologically and factually true. The question is, how do we actually experience that? J.D.'s on a sabbatical right now, and uh, and I got, I went through a sabbatical right before he did, so I know that most people think that's a vacation, but he's about to learn, and he already has because we met last week, that that's not really the case. It's actually more of an opportunity to see if the God you know here is the God you're experiencing here. And on my sabbatical, I read uh, from a guy named Edwin Friedman. I don't know if you've ever heard of this guy, very uh, dense author who wrote a book called um, Failure of Nerve. And in it, his whole premise in the book is that our culture is built on this utopian myth that if we could put everything in order, we would finally experience peace. So what we're doing is we're putting lots more things into being effective and efficient so we can experience that. As a result, our resources our actually our lifespan, et cetera, actually are going on the incline in our world right now. Yet our emotions and our relationships are on a decline. And so it's not adding up as to why if we're getting all these things together, it's not actually working. Now, he was a a consultant And he was also a counselor. And so he began to notice multiple components in families, churches, synagogues, businesses that created what he called uh, an, an anxious effect. And he put them, he had about six different things. I'm summarizing them and put them into a cycle, though he did not, in order to help you see why this may be something you know here but don't experience here. So he would look at a family system and he would say this. He would say, it all begins by reacting so tension arises, and everyone in the family starts reacting to the emotion instead of responding to God and responding to wisdom. Then what you do technically, typically is you start blaming. And so I can't find peace because it's what everybody else is doing. If they could just get their junk together, be okay. It's not my fault, but the blame rests elsewhere. But now I'm so amped up, I've got to find something, and so I have to find some quick fix because this anxiety or rage or isolation has to find a relief in our world there that's why there's the one click button on Amazon because I feel better something is going to come or I can go to Netflix and watch a show or Ben just season you know whatever I want to do but Friedman said that this desire to find a silver bullet to fix our souls is actually causing in us less resiliency less perseverance less patience And as a result, we don't have the ability to differentiate anymore. Differentiate is a fancy word. It means this is me, that's you. That's your emotion. It's not my emotion. And your emotion doesn't have to infect my emotion. All right? Makes me wonder if Edwin Freeman had kids. Okay? Anybody have teenagers? You know, it's like you're in that moment with your teenagers where you're like going back and forth. And you're like, oh, yeah, one of us is supposed to be an adult dang it, it's me. you know. And so it's very hard to, to choose that, that differentiation. Most of us, what's the first thing we look at when we wake up in the morning? Our phones. So the first thing we see is the news or we see the, the flood of texts that are telling us what we didn't do or what we have to do. And so we're thrust either into comparison by these ads, into uptight angst by all the texts we're getting, by the frustration of the news. And so we therefore start to react to that. And then as a result, as our heart's beating faster, we've got to feel better. So we go to social media, hoping that'll make us feel better. It doesn't necessarily. And so that quick fix didn't work. And now we find ourselves, we're right, we're right here. We're right here in this cycle. If you don't believe me, just look back at any of the last couple uh, rounds of political world tension in our world today, and you will watch this cycle playing out in America. Now, this is the part where I could do ministry time. We could all just come forward and say, yeah, we need help. But Freeman said there was a way to get off this crazy train and break this cycle. He said what he found is that you could insert into that anxious cycle what he called a non-anxious presence. Doesn't that sound beautiful? A non-anxious presence, meaning he would sit with the family, he would watch the chaos, and he would look, who is the one who's not reacting? And who's the one who could calmly set boundaries? And who's the one who's differentiating? And he would build his entire plan and strategy off that one person, and he would watch it become a gravitational force that would shift the dynamics of an entire family. He saw it happen in churches and organizations and synagogues. Years later, um, he was disappointed because he, he found that a lot of the people he had worked with went back to their chaos, and he was so frustrated. But he went to figure out why and learned that the person he had built around had either graduated or passed away. And once the non-anxious presence was gone, the anxiety resumed. So he's already, he's passed away. He's not here anymore. But how much do we believe the work of what he is talking about, we need more in our world than ever before? I believe Gideon needed that. And I think that's why we have to pause and say, we need that. Okay, time out. If I stop the sermon right now and say, go do that, what are you going to do? Most likely you're going to do what I did when I first heard this. And you're going to walk right out there and you're going to try really hard this week to be peaceful. <laughs> and that's going to work until you get to the children's hallway and try to get your kids and try to get out and not bump into somebody else. That's how long you trying really hard is going to work. Okay, first problem, it's done. Okay, so point number one. You cannot generate peace by willpower. You cannot, this is exactly what we were hitting on in our volunteer rally before the service. You can't generate peace by willpower. The truth of the matter is, I really want us to get this because you didn't know it today, especially if you don't like math like me, but you have a math equation playing in your head most of the time when you come and sit in church. And here's what it is. Your math equation says this I'm going to take the information that guy or girl is going to give me, and then I'm going to get enough willpower. I'm going to walk out here and I'm going to get the result. In this case, today, it's shalom and peace. But if that's the case, if that's the kingdom equation, then those of us with the most willpower win. As long as we haven't dealt with anything in the last year since 2020, we're good. But if our resiliency and our perseverance is declining and we have less willpower than ever, then the kingdom principles don't work. If that's the math equation we all have to live under. Can I get an amen? (laughs) At least a yeah, good, okay, awesome. With that in mind, go back to this verse you probably heard maybe before from a guy named Jesus in John 15 when he says, abide in me as I abide in you. Just as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I'm the vine, you're the branches. Those who abide in me and I in them bear much fruit because apart from me, you can do nothing. So here's what I'm saying by this verse. I, this is saying, Carl, if you want to tomorrow, today, you can go and act more peaceful after this sermon. You could smile more, right? I could talk a little quieter. I could go buy a let go and let God bumper sticker, and everybody would be like, what a peaceful person, okay? It would would all stick. But you can't actually become peaceful at the soul level in and of yourself because the only way you get shalom here is by being with shalom, right? This is not a personality thing. So if you're like one of those wild extroverts who's loud all the time and racing to be car two and not car 84, if that's you, just know that there's another side to all of our counterpart. There's a counterpart to that called introverts. And most people are like, I just wish I was an introvert. But the amount of introverts that I've talked to recently have said, I look calm. I do talk peacefully. I do have that bumper sticker. And what people don't know is I can't sleep at night because of the grind inside of me. So it's not a personality thing. We live in an anxious world. It's fragmented. So when we come to Philippians 4, and and he's saying, don't be anxious about anything, most of us feel like Paul is rebuking us. And he's saying, if you were a really good Christian, you wouldn't actually have that anxiety. But I wonder if we're reading this verse um, the wrong way. I wonder if God is trying to speak something different. Because actually, Paul was pretty stressed out. He got left for dead multiple times and got stoned and, um, you know, left in the ocean, almost drowned out there, got bit by a viper, almost died. So he had a few problems in his life. So he wasn't saying, you're never going to have stress. The rest of that verse says, don't be anxious about anything but by prayer. He's going back to John 15, but abide in me and I can abide with you. Be with God. My friend Bill actually says that he calls Paul a master psychologist. Of course he would, because he's a psychologist. And he says, he's basically saying, what he's saying is, all day long, you're going to be stressed out. And sometimes it's going to feel like you're dying in an ocean. May your heart just all throughout the day have tiny little moments where your heart just turns back to God. One sentence you say, one awareness moment that you have, and you don't attune to your surroundings at work or on the highway. Or through that text or on social media, but I attune to the presence of God those little moments so that the peace of God guards my heart and my mind in Christ Jesus. Colossians chapter 3, verse 15 says this and let the peace of Christ, what's that word? What is it? Rule in your hearts. Peace and ruling doesn't seem like it go together. Okay? Let's just put it in sports terminology this pains me to do it, do this, but Tate Griffin was right. He told me that UT would win the Big 12 tournament. I told him he was wrong, and they did, and the women did too. This is really painful for me to, be, to use this as an illustration. I mean, I, I sat in a home in my grandfather's house in San Antonio, and one time as a little kid rooted for someone who scored a touchdown. He's like, what are you doing? Do you not know the rules? I was like, no. He goes, We don't root for teams outside of Texas, and we never root for the University of Texas. Say it with me. And I was like, "We don't root for teams." I mean, so I was groomed as a kid. So to say a UT illustration is just sanctification. But to hear, thank you. To hear, to watch what they did. Did UT come into that tournament with a kumbaya presence? Because that's what we think of shalom. No, they ruled it, and then they lifted a trophy men and women alike, and they went home with the trophy. It was ruling. That's the language Paul is using here. The peace of Christ will rule in your heart. Like, it'll see the anxiety, chaos, stress coming, and it'll rule. Not it'll kumbaya. It'll it'll take over, okay? That's what it can do. Now, this is interesting. Back to Gideon. Gideon's first assignment after this encounter with God is to go and smash the idol in the village. And he's so bold, he goes at night so nobody will see him. And so they change his name. You can read it. The name they change is like, it means idol smasher. That's what he does. Now, we don't have like real idols. We just are all thrown into all kinds of opportunities to feel our own addictions in various ways. And when that happens, we don't need a soft, mushy feeling. We need Jehovah Shalom to come and rule. Anybody agree? So... That's what I believe God is wanting to even invite all of us into today, that type of of ruling power. So, but in order to do that, you're going to have to be convinced that you can't change you, and you can't actually do anything inside of you to make that shift. So I thought about just giving you a few tips, but then I decided not to do that. And so if you are holding anything in your hands, just put it on the ground, okay? Okay. Because what I don't want from this point forward is for anything to be about just information you're getting or willpower you're creating. I want this to be an experience you have with God from this point forward, all right? Because I, I really believe it's your experience with God that's going to shift something at the soul level. And we're going we're to do a practice together um, as uh, Anita plays that comes from Psalm 4610. I bet you know this verse or have heard of it before. It says, be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted. And it goes on to share a few more things. And I just have always loved this verse. I got in ministry uh, 25 years ago or so. And this was such my favorite verse. I signed every email, actually it was letters in those days, every letter this way right here. I would, I would sign, I'd write a letter and say, Psalm 4610, Carl. Just, I had to put it everywhere so it would get in my mind. But then some teenager one day goes, what's that say? And I go, well, go look it up. And they're like, I'm not going to look it up. And I was like, oh, I've got to spell it out. So I wrote a letter and signed it this way. Be still and know that I am God, Carl. <laughs> so then I get a few uh, phone calls from some parents who are wondering if I thought I'd reach divine status being a 23-year-old youth pastor. And I was thinking about that recently, and I realized, I, of course, never did I ever think I was the Messiah and the Almighty. But if you watch my MO internally, I get up every morning, have a quiet time, spend time with God, and then it's almost like I pick up a backpack of responsibility and go, thanks God, and then I feel like I've got to make this happen today. There's a degree of truth to it. I mean, someone's got to pay the bills, and we got some meetings got to be led, and that's what's so hard about this. How do you make that a reality without being like the bowler that rolls the ball, and then, though he has no control whatsoever, is going like that for the next five seconds? hoping that somehow he can will it over there. I think that's why so many of us are tired. Our spiritual life says pray and then act like it all depends on you. And we're pointing to the bowling ball of life going, no, I don't want my kids to go that way. Oh, I don't want my parents to go that way. Oh, my finances are going that way. Wait, that business situation, I didn't know it was going to go that way. I didn't ask to be transitioned to that school. I didn't ask to come to this city. I didn't, and we're just pointing these going this way, this way. And internally, the bowler in us is getting exhausted. Even as I said that, thoughts came to your mind. And so I want you to do me a favor. Put your hands. I want you, whatever that thing that came to your mind, I bet you don't have to think long. That could just be a stressor. Keep your eyes open because we're not done here. So don't go into contemplative mode quite yet. But <laughs> put that thing in your hands, your finances. That situation with your family, your grandparents' struggle, whatever it is, just hold it there in your hands. Now, here's what you're going to do with this. There's a priest by the name of Ignatius of Loyola, who's from the 16th century, and he called something indifference. Now, we think of indifference being apathetic, but he wasn't calling us to be uh, like living like, I don't care, I'm just going to lose all desire in that way. That's called self-protection. But he said indifference is when I am free at a soul level from having to have my life go a certain way in order to experience the peace I want. That is not easy. But I think it's maybe what Jesus was talking about in John 16. He even declared an hour is coming, indeed it's come, when you're going to be scattered each to his own home, you're going to leave me alone, not a peaceful moment, but I'm not alone for the Father's with me. And I've said these things to you that in me you may have peace because in the world you're going to have tribulation, but take heart, I've overcome the world. What He's basically saying it is an anxious cycle and I'm going to be able to find a non-anxious presence because I'm connecting to Shalom in the midst of that. And this weird man, David, a warrior is saying the way you get it is not by charging out of here and saying we're going to do this and go to war. It's actually ready, set, slow. And so now I do want to encourage you, just close your eyes for a moment. And I want you to breathe in deeply and hold that breath for a few seconds. And now exhale slowly. And this time when you breathe in, I want you to say to yourself, be still. And hold it in. And then exhale, saying the words, I abandon the outcome to God. Breathe in. Be still. And then exhale as you say, I abandon the outcomes to God. Notice you're still holding that stressor in the palm of your hands is an indicator that it's something you care about. And I'm just going to give you a couple of minutes here. I want you now, breathing in, saying, be still. Then turn your wrist over, open your hands, and let it go. And say, I abandon the outcomes to God. And then do it again. Tighten those fists. Breathe in. Be still. Turn them over. Open it. Abandon the outcomes to God. I want you to do that over and over again. Just you and Jesus together. Okay, if your mind wanders, just bring it back. Just say it again and again. Be still. I abandon the outcomes to God. One more time all together. With those hands clenched. Just breathe in and saying, be still. Turn those hands over. Release it. I abandon the outcome to God. You can open your eyes for a moment. Again, I told you, when I heard this, I was hardly sleeping, racked with a lot of concerns and fears. and My wife told me, I saw you cry more in a year uh, than I'd seen in the previous, almost 24 of us being married. So I wasn't floating in a lazy river, though I was on a sabbatical. I was experiencing things that my activities had covered up and now they were gone. So I started to read the Bible a little differently. Actually, I would say those prayers. I, I would say, I abandoned the outcome to God Sometimes five times a day, sometimes 20 times a day just to get it past my mind down in my soul. And I read the story of Gideon and I realized he really did this. He's able to shrink his army down to 300 people and go to war with a jar and trumpet. That's abandoning the outcome to God. They want to make him king and he differentiates and goes, no. Sets a boundary. But then as he gets a little older, they offer to give him his gold and he takes it all and he forms an idol. And we're right back to where we started. And my heart broke as I realized for a lot of us, we've been following Jesus a long time. But the revelation seems like it's gotten quieter. The pain's gotten louder. And it's easier later in our life to just take up control, to build an idol. and go, Man, we missed it. And I just wonder if all week long you're supposed to just say, one sentence. I just want to be still today and abandon the outcome to God, not pick it up regardless of where I am and just meet God here. So I want to encourage us all to stand to our feet as the rest of the band comes. They're going to they're gonna lead us into this song together. And even during this song as it plays, you might need to keep going. You might need to keep going, God, I don't know where our country's going right now. I abandon that outcome to you. And Lord, I, I don't, we've got some big decisions that have to be made for our family this week, and there's some things going on inside, and I just abandoned that outcome to you. I mean, I'm sitting here while the bowling ball goes, and I'm not forcing it. I'm trusting the loving hands of my heavenly Father. To, and in that process, he's dislodging it from my soul so that he can be Jehovah Shalom to me, to you. So... I'm going to pray over all of us. Our ministry team is going to come to the front because you might need someone to agree with you because this is hitting on some tender nerves. Actually, everything I just said may not be hitting you at all. You may be in somewhere completely different and you need God to meet you at that level. So you can come right now and join our teams if you need prayer for anything else. But I just want to encourage us, as you close your eyes right now, to picture a loving God smiling at you He's actually reaching out to you saying, give it to me. Your future, your season, your pain, your grief. And he wants it. And Lord, we don't always know how to do it, so I'm asking by the Holy Spirit alone, would you come and give us grace to be still and know that you are God, that we are not. We release control into your hands today as we pause And say, we want to know you, not in our minds, not in information, maybe not in the way we've known you in the past, but know you at the soul level. In Jesus' name, let's sing.